P, which equals people, times a dollar sign, which equals money, times time equals W, equals wealth. So P, dollar sign, T, W. What matters is how much money does a household pay you per year? How many people are paying you that money and how long do you keep them? That translates to real agency wealth. And I think if you're not managing all four of those elements, the three elements that go with it, and tracking the wealth, then you are under extracting out of the business real wealth of the business. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world yet still remain profitable? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Chris, I was really excited to be able to have Barry Rutten on. He's become a friend of mine. And I have to tell you, if you've listened to this podcast, but you've not gone back and listened to his original podcast, Absolutely. We'll make sure we put this in the show notes. I would stop this podcast now. Go back and listen to his. We've gained gained just hundreds and hundreds of more listeners since whenever we initially launched his podcast. And so I think it's episode six, if I'm not mistaken. Go back and listen to his first episode and then come back and listen to this one because you'll see and understand why we wanted to have him back to have some contrarian thoughts about things we just didn't get to talk about last time, such as leadership and recruiting and onboarding and training. And so I think he comes at it from a different perspective. And I think our listeners are going to just really love his different view, his contrarian thoughts on all those topics. Chris, what's a couple of things you really took away? Well, first, I just want to preface what I'm going to say. Typically, I'm not a fan of contrarians because I find that they're just driven by ego and don't actually give you any insight that would even give them a reason to be a contrarian. However, when I heard that it was very rotten coming back on the podcast, I mean, it was had to say it. It was an automatic yes. Today, he came and dropped a lot of jewels despite being contrarian. I mean, he really drove home a lot of the points why agents are afraid of letting a, a team member go, why it's important to document, and also highlighted why it's not only important to be self-aware, but to also be business aware, which is brand new to me. So I'm super excited about this episode. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Google makes it easy. Swipe a card, pay for marketing. Sure, you get a few more phone calls, but they have nothing to do with your business. The truth is Google can't understand the buyer's intent. Enter Matt and Maddie Jonesa, the husband-wife duo adding intention to your online marketing game. As a State Farm agent himself, Matt built his business by maximizing the volume and quality of inbound calls. His success led to the creation of DirectClicks, a company helping insurance agents across the country grow their business through online campaigns. They focus on Google ads so you don't have to spread your budget across the internet. With attention to detail and transparency, they provide monthly review calls, exclusivity, and the lowest cost per click. So before you swipe that card, Contact Matt and Maddie Jones at directclicksinc.com. Again, that's directclicksinc.com. Barry, welcome back to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. It is great to be back here with you and Chris. I so enjoyed my time last time that I just could not wait to get back and certainly would never turn down an invitation to talk to you guys again. Certainly a pleasure to have you back, Barry. We felt like you had so much to offer that we had to have you back a second time. So we're happy to that you're here with us. Uh, it means I'm long-winded, but I get it. <laughs> no, not a shot, not a shot. So your episode just got tremendous feedback from, I mean, so many people picked up on so many different just topics and we just could not cover. I mean, your episode was the longest episode we went through and we still didn't even barely, I felt like scratch the surface of all the things in Barry's head. And so I wanted to invite you back on because I know you have a lot of contrarian views about a lot of different topics, and we're going to touch on several of those today. I mean, our name of this podcast is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast, and I know you have some contrarian views about leadership and your feelings on that. And so I'd just like to open it up and get you to just kind of share some of your thoughts about that. I do definitely embrace this contrarian role, and it's not to be difficult or not just to be fighting the tide of whatever people say or believe, but I generally have always found that whatever people are 
or the way it should be done or the way it's always been done or the way everybody does it. At best, you're going to get mediocre results. And at worst, you're getting sort of less and less impact because you're doing kind of what everybody else is doing. And so I think one of the things that is a good idea to embrace is really trying to decide what it is you really believe. And once you form your beliefs, stick with those and don't let anybody change that. And I think a lot of people really don't lead. I think they manage. My philosophy has always been that you lead people and manage things. But what I find is that agents end up getting trapped in really just being managers. If we put a more aggressive term, it almost devolves into babysitting and changing. And that's certainly not leadership. I certainly in no way mean to uh, use an analogy. But when you train a dog, one of the things they tell you is don't just keep telling the dog over and over and over, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, because the dog just stops listening to you. You need the dog to be trained in such a way that when you say things once, it acts on the one command. And I think that agents need to have higher expectations of themselves and of the people that they lead, that the people will do what the people are expected to do. I have a very literal definition of the employer-employee relationship. My feeling is the person whose name is on the signature line of the paycheck makes the rules. And I think too many agents are so fearful of their team, quote, leaving them, that they don't enforce their own rules. They don't enforce their own expectations. They don't enforce their own goals. And it just devolves into a mess over time. And so I've formed kind of a set of beliefs about leadership sales teams that are somewhat contrarian, but really should not be counter to what I think agents really, really desire. It's just they've allowed this other stuff to kind of bleed into it and, and muddy the waters. So I completely agree that people are fearful that their team is going to lead them if they were to have a difficult conversation, a hard conversation. And that doesn't go for everybody that's listening to the podcast. We're generalizing a little bit, but that's absolutely the case. And so they begin to accept mediocrity with a team member who's underperforming three months and then six months later. And before you know it, they've been on their team two years. And then they now feel like they've developed a relationship. and They're not able to actually have that difficult conversation. They don't actually know how to get out of it. They get stuck. And so what are your recommendations in a situation like that for the person to be able to develop that courage? And if you know, I'm a big fan of the book Radical Candor. It's been mentioned on this podcast numerous times by Kim Scott about caring for people personally, but challenging them directly. What are your thoughts on that? Where does that land and how can agents begin to actually feel like that they've got the courage and the confidence to address underperformance when it happens? Because no matter what, it's going to happen. I mean, people don't perform at a high level all the time. You can have A players that go through difficult times where they're underperforming. I mean, what are your thoughts? I like the two words that you used, courage and confidence. I feel like Sometimes, because these are often small office environments with not too many people in them, you're almost sometimes spending more time with your employees, your coworkers than you are with your family. I think one of the first errors that I see is not making the distinction between being friendly and being friends. I don't think it's really appropriate or beneficial or healthy to be friends with the people that you employ because it really is a commercial, not a personal or social relationship. You want to get certain things done. You're willing to give up a certain amount of your money to get those things accomplished. That's the nature of the relationship. And so going back to the two words, courage and confidence, I think you have to have the courage of your convictions. I think you have to know what path you're on, what you're trying to accomplish, not lose sight of the fact that the agency, the business needs what the agency and business needs. And that has nothing to do with the people. That just There is simply a outcome, a certain amount of revenue, a certain amount of profit, that has to happen for the agency to be functional. And that's the master that has to be served by all of us. And I think where the courage to have these conversations is tied into that confidence piece that you said, if you're not confident about your, I'll call it your employee process, and I think this is something we should delve with a little more depth, but if you're not confident about your entire employee process, all the pieces that go into it, then you're fearful, you lack courage to if someone really isn't working out to transition them out. And what's kind of stunning to me is that agents will, let's just use a number so I can do the math. They'll pay $3,000 a month for 90 days. That's $9,000. 
If they go six months, that's $18,000 of payroll plus benefits. And if they don't get any ROI on that, that money is gone forever. And all the opportunity cost that goes with it, because that money could have been invested in someone else, not only producing more near-term return, but you now have to start this process all over again. And I think agents should be a little bit more jealously protective of their dollars, of their money, and not just keep throwing money at new people without being able to plug them into an actual process that they can have confidence in that the people will have success. And I think, Bradley, you can acknowledge that most agents, the thing that really cripples them is high levels of employee turnover, because there certainly is a learning curve. There certainly is a ramp up period. And to do this over and over and over again is financially extraordinarily expensive. It's emotionally devastating. It consumes your time. And the agents that I talk to, this is really the 800-pound gorilla on their back. And yet they just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. And what I found is if they have an actual mapped out process for the entire experience of, and let's just kind of list it, there's identifying just what is the nature of this job? What are the requirements of this role and this task? Not just the things you'd like them to be able to sell, but how you actually want them to perform, the qualitative, not just the quantitative. And then how do you actually advertise for that role and make sure the job description is accurate? How do you interview to make sure you're not getting faked out and fooled by a good interviewer, but a poor performer? So you have the entire recruiting, interviewing, hiring and selection, onboarding, training, coaching, monitoring, motivating, compensating, terminating. That's a whole, I don't know how many items that is. It's a dozen items, all of which need to be worked out because if they're worked out and they're refined and you have confidence in them, if you have an underperformer, you can let them go knowing you can plug someone into your refined system that they will ramp up quickly and perform and give you an ROI. If you don't have that confidence, you're going to be terrified to let anybody go. And I have so many agents that I've talked to that will keep somebody around over and over and over again telling me, oh, Barry, they just everyone in the office or they're negative or they're resistant and cause all kinds of turmoil. And I'm like, and you're paying them why? I don't get that. I mean, I'd rather you hold on to the money and work a little harder yourself or give the money to the other employees and let them work a little bit harder than have this negative impact in the agency. And so each of those pieces, I feel, needs to have a process that you can have confidence in so that you can plug someone into a sales system. The other reason I think there's a lot of turnover, Bradley, is people want to have success, meaning the employee wants to be successful. They want to earn not just the bonus, but the psychological rewards of success. But if they're put into a position where they're constantly being told no, they're constantly experiencing rejections, objections, stalls, delays, they can't make their sales targets, they can't hit their goals, they can't earn their bonuses, they're going to be frustrated. They know their agency employer is frustrated with them. And eventually they say, you know, this isn't very much fun. I'm going to go work somewhere else. And so I think it's imperative that the agent creates an environment that attracts and retains the right kind of people and frankly repels the wrong people. And this is one of those things where I think I'm a little contrarian. I want to repel everyone except my ideal candidate. I want to do that through all of the stages. I'm hoping they bail out. I'm hoping they, my screening steps make them bail out. My interview questions make them fold and collapse and cry. That my compensation plan is scary to them unless they're really success driven. I want to repel and reject everyone who shouldn't pass through my fine filter so that I actually end up with a high performer, a player. And I find that most agents are hiring in time of desperation. Somebody quit, somebody left, somebody got fired. Oh my God, I've got a seat to fill. I got to put a body in front of a computer. And they take the first person who fogs a mirror and then they just kind of slam them in and say, oh, you know, learn how to do this, learn how to do that and ready to go. And then they wonder why they repeat that process over and over again. Would you mind walking us through a process for recruiting that you think would lead to the results that you're talking about that essentially would repel everybody else and essentially only capture the best candidates? Like, do you have an ideal step-by-step process in mind that does that and that you either employ yourself or that you coach others on employing so that they can get the results that you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think agents need to get more specific there. I think you have to understand yourself and I think you have to understand the culture that you want to create in your agency. Some agencies thrive on sort of organized chaos. Some agencies thrive in kind of more of a quiet, more methodical way. I feel that depending on your stage of business, you have to decide what your culture is going to be. 
and then recruit to, and, and hire to that culture because you don't want to have a mismatch between the people that are there that have established and maintained the culture and then the new person's kind of super disruptive to that. I think that you need to have a pair of documents. I think you need a job description and I think you need a culture description. I think you need to describe all the things that agents say they're frustrated with people not doing needs to be in your culture document. We want people to have high achievement drive and we want people to embrace working with the team and supporting the team. And we want people to be client needs-based centric. And we want people to be highly responsible as far as showing up on time and staying late if necessary and doing what it takes and organization. I think it drives agents crazy to babysit people. My suggestion for the listeners is whatever drives you insane, whatever you end up having to scold people about and coach people about and put them on warning about, write that down and write it. Write the positive outcome. What is the thing you desire? And honestly, if you think about it, it's unfair to hire somebody without that. Because if you say, hey, we're hiring you for this position and these are the tasks you're doing, but you don't give them that qualitative, this is the way and the how, how could they possibly achieve that? So the worst thing you can do is hire somebody and not give them any goals because that creates a tremendous amount of frustration. Yeah, but I mean, but, just to that point, what you just said right there about goals, I mean, the results part is what agents typically are pretty good at being able to put down on that. They can say, well, we need you to sell this many auto, this many fire, this many life, but, and they think that that's it, right? Then they come up with a bunch of fluff. Let's be real. I mean, it's a bunch of fluff on job descriptions as opposed to this is really what we're asking you to do. And what you're describing, this is the things that drive me insane. Okay, so you tell people on the front side, but then this is also how we want you to show up. This is the performance aspect of it, not just the quantitative, the qualitative aspect of your job. I completely agree with that. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top-performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, we have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. Yeah, I think that the lack of that path to follow means that what you're doing is allowing the employee to decide what that should be. And that's dangerous because you can't have whether people, two people work for you or four or six, you can't have them all doing things differently, certainly not on the client-facing side, and certainly not on the interrelational side between the employees themselves. And if you allow that to happen, you just create sort of this grinding at the edges of each person. And eventually, what I have observed is what's unfortunate is oftentimes your best people are the ones who leave, the ones you really want to retain become incredibly frustrated with the lack of professionalism and commitment or adherence to agency culture. And when it's allowed to perpetuate, they don't get mad at the coworker. They get mad at the agent. They get mad at the owner. How have you allowed this to perpetuate? Why have you put us in this environment? Why have you kept us in this kind of cultural cauldron of boiling frustration? Go work somewhere else where, where I don't have this happen. I think that's a really critical thing to be really thinking about because you can't get the sales results unless the agency is really performing as a unified structure. It can't be just a random collection of people trying to sell stuff. Not to copy Gary Vee, but he often talks about self-awareness and really everything that you're describing comes from a point of you being incredibly self-aware of the type of agent that you are, that type of agent that you want to be and the type of culture that you want to have as well. And all that stems from awareness. So having said that, I think that that can be a very broad term. Me telling somebody, be more self-aware, that's a very, like a broad stroke advice, right? So what are some ways that, some habits that I can call today to actually become more self-aware and maybe not overnight suddenly go ahead and discover like who I am and the type of culture that I want to have? 
but over time, I can actually start to get to know myself better and actually be self-aware enough to be able to drive the culture that I want to carry out at my agency. Well, in keeping with the spirit of contrarianism, I'm going to modify self-aware to business aware. And this is my best mechanism mm -hmm. for this. Pretend that you were hurt, you know, you suffered an injury or an illness, and you couldn't physically participate in the business at all, meaning you had no involvement in your agency at all for six to 12 months. Serious injury, serious illness, you're out of the picture. How would this business function? Can your employees step up and have they been trained to be self-managed, self-led, self-motivated? Are there systems and processes in place to make sure all the other pieces happen? The marketing function, the sales function, the service function, the operational function, where I think most agencies rely on things like memory and sort of lore that's passed down and inherited. I believe that where agents get in trouble is there's nothing stored. It's called institutional knowledge. So let's just say, Chris, you were one of my best employees. You've been around for five years. You know how to do everything. And yet the day you leave, all of that leaves with you. So all of your systems, all of your processes, all of your ways of doing things, whether that's an audio, whether that's a video, whether that's checklists, those need to be stored in it's retrievable and kept updated. One of the things I suggest is that agents assign each person who has a set of tasks and responsibilities to just kind of describe how they do certain things and write down how they do certain things. And every time I coach an agent on this, there's a set of three bullet points I want them to think about. And so I'm going to use Bradley because I know he's a very successful agency owner. Every single time something comes up in that agency, if I put it in front of Bradley, he would have a certain set of thoughts. He would react to the situation a certain way. So it's what would Bradley think, first of all. Then, depending on the situation, what would Bradley either say or do to properly accomplish that outcome, keeping in mind that he has this body of knowledge and wisdom that's qualitative, meaning he knows, oh, if I don't address this or I don't take care of that, then this problem is going to happen down the road. So I need to make sure I do this, that, and the other thing. Is that kind of information that you have self-contained within you as the agent or your top people have self-contained in you, how is that stored and shared? And to circle back to that other question about having that courage and confidence, if that was systematized, how much more confident would you be in letting somebody go who's underperforming, who wouldn't follow your corrective plan and move towards success, you'd be like, no problem. <laughs> Bring on the next person. I know my entire onboarding process, my training process, my self-improvement process, everything they need to learn. We're not starting from scratch at day one. We have a syllabus of training. We have a process that they're going to go through. We have resources that they can tap into. Changing employees is not that big a deal now. Barry, agents are in a tough spot. I mean, the salaries and wages that they're paying these team members and what's really asked of them to do in their insurance agencies is tough. I mean, the reality is, is Lowe's and Home Depot and Chick-fil-A are paying $15 and plus an hour. And in an insurance agency, you're asked to do a lot of different things and manage a lot of different, I mean, get professional licenses, et cetera. And so how can agents be able to find people that they can afford, quite frankly, but yet have the skills and the tools and the capacity to actually be able to perform the job at the level that they need them to? I think that's a great question. And it's interesting talking about the word afford. And I do have some pretty strong feelings. I hope I don't step on any too many toes, but I just have some pretty strong feelings about this idea of how people should be compensated and what it is you actually want from them. And I, I believe the frontline team member does have a tough job. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to know, a lot of things are being asked of them. I think one of the things that I tend to think about is there's two kinds of money, two pools of dollars. There's your money, I'm going to call that the agent's renewals, and their money, I'm going to call that the insurance company's ability to send you a new commission check. I think what they look at is, what is my capacity to divert money that could go into my own checkbook, and how much am I willing to pay that person, quote, per hour to do their work, versus am I setting up a culture that's so successful, that so much new business commissions get written, that renewals continue to flow, that I have so much cash flow that I can afford to have the highest quality of people. Let's be honest, a lot of agents will hire very young people, not a lot of experience, so they can pay them a very low wage, and they have very high expectations of them, not only on the production side, but 
on the people side, right? And to have the poise of dealing with clients' objections and anger about claims and all those kinds of things. And if you're positioning the role as on par with someone who works at a fast food restaurant or a, a service position at like Home Depot or something, I think it's missing the point. Some of the best agents that I've worked with, what I tell them is one of your recruiting advantages is your mentorship. And I think people don't value, they don't literally put a price on their wisdom and their experience and their mentorship of these young folks. Do I expect them to stay with this agency forever? Do I expect them to be their career position? Not necessarily, although it's, it could be for the right person who aspires to be an agent. But if you're hiring younger people and paying them less wages, if you work for five at Home Depot, you're going to be good at finding stuff on the shelf in aisle seven. If you work for this agent for five years, you're going to be a much with the right systems and processes and training. You're going to have hopefully advanced sales skills. You're going to have the poise of having worked with all kinds of different people. You're going to have the maturity of having to interact with different personalities, both your coworkers and your customers. Where will you be, Mr. or Mrs. Perspective, new employee hire, three to five years when you leave or move on from this position versus any other position that you could possibly take? And I think one of the things that agents should be, and I'm going to go by, I really love Chris's question about self-awareness. Are you self-aware of what you bring to the table? And I think you have to ask yourself the hard question, what are you bringing to the table? Are you an appealing mentor, coach, leader to your team? Or are you just somebody who wants to bring in bodies and have them sell stuff for you and get a nice check and live a nice life and always flexible on time, which is fine. But I think your expectations of what you want from people versus what you're willing to put into them in exchange for what you get back from them is something that people really need to consider. And I think too many people are just like, I'm just going to hire a body. They're going to do a task. Oh, they're not doing the task. I'm going to replace them with somebody else. And they're just going to repeat the process over and over again. I think you should have the confidence to say that I actually bring the goods. I'm valuable to this person beyond what I pay them in terms of wages. And the other thing is, if you really want to make serious money, contribute on the side of the equation where we receive new money from the side the insurance company, right? Because the insurance company has an unlimited checkbook to send you money every time something new gets sold. And for me, I get really grumpy when team members are asking for a raise and yet didn't meet their sales targets, which would have meant there was more agency top-line revenue available. And so you want to make more, sell more stuff, learn more, seek more, ask to get feedback, ask for me to sit in on your appointments, sit in on my appointments and, you know, let's do joint appointments, let's debrief focus after us. I see way too much passivity, frankly, on both sides. The agent is not dragging the team member who set that appointment into the appointment so they can observe and learn. The team member is not saying, hey, I want to get better, poke holes in what I'm doing. You guys know this. In a lot of the coaching I do, we do a lot of role play. And I give a lot of role play feedback. And I teach the agents how to give role play feedback. Because bottom line, this is not a technical job. This is a human communication job. And honestly, most people suck at it. Most people do not have good language skills, delivery skills, poise, and they're terrible listeners, they're terrible communicators, and they have no process. And is it any wonder they can't be successful? And so I think both parties need to say, what are we bringing to the table? What are our mutual expectations? Which is why you want that cultural document so that everybody has a chance to succeed and everybody stops worrying about, am I going to make more money flipping hamburgers or servicing policies at this agency? I also think agents need to look at the reality that if you really want people's time, there needs to be an incentive to do so. And I think some of that can be some profit sharing, you know, that there's a kind of a collective benefit from everybody's effort and everybody's work. Property and casualty is necessarily a high dollar per transaction, especially on the personal line side. It's better on the commercial side. Certainly a lot more money on the life side. Maybe we start creating pools, uh, you know, bonus things out of those sales, out of those commissions. I think to compensation model, you really have to find that way to incentivize people. But we all know that people's incentives are beyond money. It's culture, it's environment, it's appreciation, gratitude, all those kinds of things. And sometimes it's things like time flexibility. I know for me, that's a huge thing, time flexibility, especially with people having families and family challenges and things. So yeah, I know it's a competitive environment and wages can be a significant issue, but I think they have to look at the entire package of what they're bringing to the table, including that mentorship. So you were talking about wishes and specifically wishful sales outcomes. And I typically don't use the term goals. I mean, everybody knows what the goal is, but goals 
tend, in my opinion, to be synonymous with wishes. And so I think we'd be better off if we had more standards and fewer goals. But you have some strong opinions. You and I have talked about this, about wishful sales outcomes. And so can you talk about this? Because you and I have gone for a long time talking about wishful sales outcomes just in general. So I'd love for the listeners to hear your thoughts about this. I'm always flabbergasted, even at the use of the word goals. You know, my goal is to sell this many things, or my goal is to sell that many things, or I hope we do. (laughs) You'll have this great business plan if there is one at the beginning of the year. And after two months, you abandon it. And then it's just like, well, I hope things work out for the end of the year. I feel very strongly that agents need to have sales certainty in their business operations. They have to be certain how much business needs to be written in a year. And it's not a goal. It's not an aspiration. It's a certainty. I must write this number of policies to cover the policies that leave for whatever reason, canceled, lapsed, whatever. And I need to write this number of policies to grow. And I need this much premium revenue. I need this much premium from auto. And I need this much premium from fire. And I need this much premium from life. And then that has to be backed into, and this is where a lot of agencies are very weak, that has to be backed into your typical sales model of how many people do I need to talk to in order to have that happen. Most agencies that I ask, what are your closing ratios for each line? It's scary to me that a lot of them don't know their closing ratios. If you ask the team members what their personal closing ratios are, they're not aware of those either. And the other thing that kills me is agents will spend their hard-earned dollars on marketing, on lead generation, and then not know to a certainty that if their team member is talking to a qualified prospect, are they going to be able to write them? And you don't have to spend more money on marketing if you can change your closing ratio from 2 out of 10 to 7 out of 10. Nobody gets 10 out of 10. The other thing is that there has to be a commitment to activity there has to be a certain amount of time in a day spent on marketing and prospecting and outbound calling, all those kinds of things and outbound outreach. Maybe that's through letters. Maybe that's through automated texts and emails, but somebody has to talk to somebody else for something to happen. And then the expectation is, are my employees trained to a level that given a qualified product, they are not only certain to successfully close the sale, but close that sale at the proper and suitable amounts. If it should be 250 500 why is it 5100 If there should be a liability umbrella, why is it not being written? If there should be a million dollars written, and each client, each prospect, customer, client represents a certain amount of total lines of business, a certain total amount of premium paid and, and commission revenue, and the agent should have an expectation that I want all of it. If it's there, I want all of it. I need to have certainty of that. At least I think this is the right way to think about it. If you had half the clients who paid you double the revenue, you have a much easier business to manage. You could have a thousand clients paying you a hundred dollars, or you could have five hundred clients paying you two hundred dollars. Which business is easier to run? The smaller number of people paying you the higher amount of money. And plus, since each person pays you more money, you can afford to spend a little bit more money on them on retention. You know, one question I would ask the agents is, what is your retention budget? per household based on their level. What is your retention budget for an A household that might pay $5,000 a year in in premiums versus a D household that might pay you $200? So you have to really look at what is that household worth to you? Which ones do you want to clone? Do you want to clone the Ds or you want to clone the As? I would challenge most agents to go in and break down their agencies by premium allocation. What percentage of your agency is paying you X and above? How many people of the total pay you 5,000 above in premium. And then how many people pay you between two and five? How many people pay 500 and 2,000? And the goal should be to get rid of the Ds completely because they're not profitable and move the Cs to Bs and the Bs to As and keep trimming the bottom. But Barry, we're supposed to treat all customers equally, right? (laughs) This is in kindergarten. This is business. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just I, I, I want to say, I didn't know that yeah, there was such thing as It's, as it's not a democracy. It's a dictator's, right? I feel like if you really knew what percentage of your business was really A premium clients versus how many were C premium clients, I think agents instinctively realize that more of them are Cs. And is there an active program within the agency to keep moving them up the scale if they're existing? and to actually start them out as A's and B's if they're new. The killer of most agencies, like in most things, the 80-20 rule. 80% of your staff time and 80% of your payroll is being paid to service the lowest 20% of your book of business. 
the people who call in and need a lot of service and a lot of handholding are not the high profit clients. The high profit clients are out making money in their careers. They're not changing cars and turning this on and turning this off and skipping payments and blah, 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 blah. So you're getting all this money to retain the low end of your book. What if that money was reallocated to the high end of your book? What if there was more prospect appreciation events, more time spent trying to meet with those people rather than holding the hands of the people who are low profit and it's the heck out of me. And I don't want to have agents wasting their time doing that. Those people can go get serviced by somebody else. That's my feeling. All right. So before we transition into Enon, I just want to give you an opportunity just to give any kind of final thoughts, any kind of final contrarian thoughts about agency business and agency leadership in general. I feel that the number one thing that agents may overlook as they evaluate their business on maybe a year-to-year basis is the long-term financial impact of having high-premium, multi-line households, having that translate to wealth. I think there's a very simple but very important and overlooked formula. The way to have one think of the formula is P, which equals people, times a dollar sign, which equals money times time equals W equals wealth. So P dollar sign T W. What matters is how much money does a household pay you per year? How many people are paying you that money and how long do you keep them? That translates to real agency wealth. And I think if you're not managing all four of those elements, the three elements that go with it and tracking the wealth, then you are under extracting out of the business, the real wealth of the business. We're in business to make money. We're going to make that money by helping people in the maximal way with the maximum amount of protection at the highest levels. We need to have systems and processes that sell to the best possible outcome for the client. So when there's a financial loss, they have the best opportunity to be made whole. And what's going to happen is if we sell that way, it's going to mean that we're selling really to the best part of the market. Those people hang out with other people just like them. And if you have great conversations, then they're going to introduce you to other people just like them. And you're going to grow an A level and B level book and not a C and D level book. And you're going to extract the maximum wealth uh, out of your agency. And what I'm talking about is having multi-decade client relationships, not a couple of years. And that's where the real wealth of agency comes from. But too many of these pieces are left to chance. Too many things are random. Too many things are accidental. And I think agents step over hundreds of thousands. And for younger agents, possibly millions of dollars over the course of their career. And that's just tragic. That really should happen. It pains me probably the way it pains you guys to see good agents, good people with the best of intentions either struggle or wash out of the business or make far less income while working harder and harder and harder. That's painful to me. That's why I do what I do because it's not necessary. It doesn't have to happen, but nobody's telling them and nobody's giving them the path and they just kind of suffer in mediocrity and that's very painful to watch. All right, we've got some new E9 questions. What's the number one thing that you loved the most about being quarantined during COVID? <laughs> I was never these people who understood the binge watching. I sat down and binge watched 30 episodes of something. We blasted through like all the old episodes of Star Trek Voyager. I watched a whole bunch of episodes of all those things. I never thought I would be one of those people who could watch something back to back to back to back to back. So I discovered binge watching, I guess. What book would you recommend the most to others? Oh, you guys always ask me the book question. I'm sitting here actually accidentally kicked a giant box of books that I have in my floor that need to get up on my shelf. I think one of the best things that agents can do is actually go, when it's safe, I guess, go to a physical bookstore. Stop looking at Amazon. Go to a physical bookstore on some rainy day and really just what's there, especially in the business and self-improvement categories. There's a lot of stuff out there for business owners to really think differently. But here's the caveat. So as opposed to one book, I'll give you this caveat. Stop buying books written for corporations. You're not a Fortune 500 company. Buy books written by people who understand small businesses, entrepreneurs, and the leadership of small businesses and entrepreneurial enterprises, and you'll have a lot more ability to implement what you actually read. I think there's so much stuff written so that CEOs buy 10,000 books uh, and give them to all their employees so they read them. 
to what can actually have an impact in your business. And that's why I'd rather give than give you a book title. I see too many agents reading and we always see Bradley's uh, giant bookcase and I have a giant bookcase. And But so many of these books, applicability is not there if you don't have 27 departments and 37 vice presidents. What works in a small business is going to be more impactful. And I said, like I said, get off Amazon, go to a bookstore and actually see the breadth of what's out there. And I think that'll zero you in a little bit better. I have to say, I completely agree with that because I've read a lot of books in the last two to three years. And it's more about what I've said no to or not tried to implement than what I actually do try to implement. So I agree exactly. with that, having a much exactly. yeah. finer filter. So good point. Okay, if there was a movie made about the life of Barry Rutten, who would you want to play you and why? <laughs> That's such an amazing question. I'm confident enough in myself that I know I would want to have an actor who was more attractive than me so that people would actually pay attention to what the actor was saying on screen and not distracted by the hideous looks. I always kind of see myself and kind of, believe it or not, kind of having a, a Tom Cruise and I are the same age. I watched his early movies. He had a wrestling background and I had a wrestling background. And I've always just kind of thought, you know, Tom Cruise is my age, looks a hell of a lot better than me, much more fit, got a lot more toys, got a lot more money. So I think Tom would be my guy. He and I are a lot alike. What things do you do every day that you wish could be automated? Your lightning round questions. These are really good. I wish I could think my email. I wish emails came in, I could just go thought and the thoughts would all fully appear on the screen and write and they would just send themselves. If there was some kind of automated machine, one of the things I've been doing lately is I discovered that Outlook, I knew this was in Word, but in Outlook, there's dictation. And I've been using dictation to get my email responses out faster. So I like that. But boy, if there could be a mind mail between me and email and just get those responses back quicker and easier and faster, that would be great. And I have introduced Barry to the world of Voxer. Welcome to Voxer, Barry. I'm a new, this I'm a new is Voxer the game changer. Yes. Yeah. And because I think you can, if clients ask you questions or for me, if my coaching students ask me questions, I'm a lot like Bradley. And I think there's a lot that our voice and our tone carries that obviously does not convey an email or text. It's why I think even your quotes should be via video or at least with an audio clip going with it or a narrated PDF, you know, from something like Camtasia to capture the human element and not just these electrons on a screen that have no tone or emotion. If you were on a 10 hour flight flying to Europe, who would you love to sit next to and why? <laughs> I got to keep this clean, I think. I've always been fascinated by people who are content with themselves, you know, just really comfortable in their own skin and not really trying to impress everybody. I would want to sit next to Warren Buffett, but not for the reason most people want to. Everybody wants to sit next to him and pick his brain for financial advice. I want to know how he's able to be comfortable in kind of the same suits he was wearing in the 70s, the same car he was driving in the 80s, the same house he's been in since the 50s, and how he's just stayed really, really true to himself and who and what he is and hasn't really tried to impress anybody even though he's so fabulously wealthy. And There's a difference between, say, the way Paul Allen uh, handled his wealth and Bill Gates handled his wealth, right? I feel like the way Buffett stayed really true to himself, no matter how much money he made, and so many people followed him, you know, we were talking about leadership. So many people follow him, not just because he made so much money, but I think because he stayed true to his own course and just stayed in him, knew what he was good at and, and just kept replicating that. Plus, I hope he gives me a tip that makes me a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, you're close by. 10 hours. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, man. It's <laughs> good. I actually think about it quite often because the it's the coming down to the one. I think we could all make a list. I really, really, really like chocolate in all forms. I'm not sure that's really classified as a food, but I just like all things chocolate. So as long as it kept me alive, I guess I'd go with chocolate. You don't have a lot I of energy I know this. for sure. Well, I could eat Oreos. My wife knows. I like the biggest. Oh, God. I think that I don't Double know what stuff, the news. No, no, no. There's like even something beyond mega stuff right now. I don't know what it is, but it's like extreme stuff or something. Anyway, that's what I would eat. I love Oreos. <laughs> All right. I don't think I know the answer to this question. So I'm curious to ask you, what is your most unusual talent? Well, the one that always comes to mind, 
I think there's two answers I'm going to give you. Most unusual true talent is pretty confident I can dock any boat. Have very good spatial awareness. And we've chartered a lot of boats that are like much larger than the boats we own. And I've always really successfully docked those really well, where I see a lot of other people crashing into docks. It's uh, sort of a three-dimensional sense of what you have to have around you to be able to understand where you are in relation to. Pretty sure I could dock a cruise ship if really, uh, you know, I learned how the controls all worked. The other thing that I've kind of uh, always felt kind of cool about is I'm very, very cool under pressure in an emergency. I was a lifeguard and I've been in a lot of situations where I've been involved where people have had accidents and I seem to be able to be very calm, things slow down, I'm able to deal with the situation and kind of direct other people and get through the situation. Afterwards, I'm a basket case, wrung out and adrenaline crushed, but I handle myself pretty well in an emergency situation. What's something that I would never guess about you? As strongly as I express my opinions, my wife says I speak as if I'm handing stone tablets down from a mountaintop. I'm a pretty big softy. I really believe what I say about really taking care of the clients. I really tend to think about their children and the outcomes they have. And if somebody said, who would you leave your money to? I'd probably just leave it to kids' charities and pet charities and things like that. I'm kind of a big softy, even though I talk carrying of a big stick. I don't think you can be successful in this business very long without having a good heart. And I mean, you know, I have a really good heart. I care about the agents I coach. I care about the clients that I work with. And I care about the outcomes. I really, really want the outcome to be what people want it to be, whether that's doing financial planning or insurance or coaching or whatever. I think we all really want to have an impact. It's great to make money, but I think we have a really big impact on other people's lives. And that really matters to me. So I think that's maybe the insight about me I'd want people to know about. Right, so last time I asked you, what's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever been given? But as our last question for the podcast, what is the biggest piece of leadership advice that you think people get wrong most of the time? I mean, the military leadership is sort of required, right? It's kind of built into the system. When the leadership follower, it's where it's not really required, but it's earned. I think people tend to focus on getting the people to like them. Like you should follow me because you like me. And I think that can really cause a lot of harm in a, especially an employer-employee leadership relationship. I think you want people to respect you and be inspired by you. I think when agents are say, for example, in the trenches, selling right alongside their employee, I think that inspires people to want to work really hard as opposed to, hey, you need to sell this stuff so I can be successful. I think it's the respect, the inspiration, I think you want to create natural followership to your leadership and not have it feel obligated or forced. And it's not about liking, it's about appreciating and, and respecting the other person so that you want to follow them. I think when people really see leaders go to the mat for them, want to follow them. And when leaders are just kind of pretending, you know, the, the same phrase, I didn't come up with it, which is leaders without followers are just taking a walk. I think you got to ask yourself, if you're a walker like Forrest Gump, do you have a whole bunch of people behind you? Barry, thank you so much for your time. As always, I love having you back on for a second time, hearing your contrarian thoughts. I like when people just think about things differently and are able to articulate themselves in a different way. So as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You guys always uh, put me on the spot with these tough questions. Those make me a little more nervous than the other questions. But I really enjoyed it and happy to come to you. Let me know when he gets to me, but I've always be come back uh, if you invite me again. Barry, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to be able to do that and learn more about your programs and how you can help them? Sure. I've always kind of felt that the doctor model is really representative of the way I like to work with clients. And you know, there has to be an examination, a diagnosis, and a prescription if there's anything wrong. And so the website I use is called theinsurancesalesdoctor.com. So the word the, the, T-H-E theinsurancesalesdoctor.com. There's information about the programs that I offer, testimonials from agents that have worked with me. There's a way to call with me, which I call an agency diagnostic call and best way for people to get in touch. There's some free resources there, some great things that agents can download and kind of get a taste of the kind of work that I do. So theinsurancesalesdoctor.com. All right, we'll put all these links in our show notes and obviously in the email that we send out. If you're not getting our emails, make sure you go to club.capital forward slash podcast, sign up for our podcast episodes whenever we send those out and we'll make sure we put Barry's link in. Barry, thanks again. I hope to have you back on. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Barry. Barry.
what episode that was. Uh, like I said, I'm typically not a big fan of contrarians, but as you guys just heard, Barry's a wordsmith, contrarian, strategist, you name it. He's definitely all that. If there's one type of person that I'm super happy to, it's intelligent people. And Barry definitely has proven to be that and much more. The bites that he gave us about leadership and some contrarian views and some very polarizing views that he has when he said things like, a lot of people don't lead, they manage. Even managers can actually think of themselves as leaders. But in reality, if you're not actually driving the culture, you might really be just a manager. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. What do you need to drive the culture? To be aware, to be business aware, and to actually have like really an honor code of like what you expect the team member to do, not only from a job perspective, but also from a culture perspective. That's something that I had never thought about. So really, really stuck with me. And one quote that I think everyone in the back of their mind is that leaders without followers are just taking a walk. I mean, when I heard that, I was just like, it really, really just resonated with me. What's something that you walked away with, Bradley? Well, I agree with the fact that you were saying that he has contrarian views, but you can tell that he really cares and wants to make an impact on the agent's offices and their teams, as opposed to just being different to be different sakes. And so I totally agree with that. Not to mention, obviously, years of experience that he has in actually being in insurance agency offices. He's not just coming out from an outsider's perspective. I like the fact whenever he puts it in with qualitative and quantitative numbers. So, I mean, having both. And the piece, whenever we started talking about having a document that describes your culture, that's incredibly important. Just being able to say, here, the things that drive me insane. Here are the results that we're looking for. Here's the performance that we're looking for. Maybe like, here's how you can be a hero to us, you know? And so having that down on the piece of paper to be able to have that clarity, we say in our coaching program, generalizations kill clarity. And so being able to be clear on the front side sets people up for success. Business is really, really hard. Give your team members the best chance possible for them to be able to succeed. Gallup did a poll, or I guess a study, and they found out that workplace unhappiness, it was one of their biggest studies they've ever done, that the number one reason people were unhappy in work is they did not know, they were unclear as to what was expected of them. And so everything about what Barry was saying was about being clear with the expectations, not just the quantitative, here's the numbers you need to sell, the auto, the fire, but just everything else about culture and what we expect from you and how we want you to show up, that is incredibly important. So I just loved having him on to be able to talk about those things. We'll put a link into his website, theinsurancesalesdoctor.com. Reach out to Barry, see if he can be able to help you in any way. Reach out to our friends at DirectClicks, directclicksinc.com, Matt and Maddie Jonesa, and their new COO, Tim. They'd love to be able to take care of you good people over at Direct Clicks. We appreciate their sponsorship of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Chris, until next time, lead well. And stay classy.